Welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. I'm your co-host, Efren Kabalius, and I'm a sports medicine physician. I'm your co-host, Kurt Roser, and I'm a physical therapist. We're based out of the Boulder, Colorado area and have a passion for working with endurance athletes of all abilities. The goal of our podcast is to engage in thoughtful discussions with athletes, coaches, and clinicians to share knowledge within the field of sports medicine and inspire progression in the sport of running. We hope to empower individuals to navigate injuries, reduce injury risk, optimize training and performance, and provide listeners with the tools needed to get ready to run. You'll be able to listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe and leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear on the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at Ready to Run Podcast, as well as our website, readytorunpodcast.com. In today's episode of the Ready to Run Podcast, we'll sit down with Dr. David Ribniak, who is a physical medicine and rehabilitation sports medicine physician based out of Charlottesville, Virginia at the University of Virginia. He is an expert in several areas of sports medicine, including sports ultrasound, running medicine, and orthobiologics. He'll share his expertise on platelet-rich plasma, otherwise known as PRP. PRP is a tool used by many sports medicine physicians, and the goal of today's episode is to discuss the state of the science and talk about some of the myths and facts, common clinical applications, and ways we can optimize our outcomes for patients with use of ultrasound to guide our injections and formulating an effective post-PRP rehabilitation strategy. This is an exciting topic that generates a lot of attention in our sports medicine practice, and we are excited to have a leading expert in this arena share his knowledge on PRP. So let's get ready to run with Dr. David Ripniak. Okay, in today's episode of the Ready to Run podcast, we have a very exciting topic. Uh, we're going to talk about platelet-rich plasma, otherwise known as PRP for short. And it's just one of the many orthobiologic options that we offer our patients who are struggling with injury and may have prolonged injury, particularly with joints and tendons. And uh, we're going to meet with Dr. Dave Ribniak, who is a assistant professor at the University of Virginia. And uh, just to give you a little bit about his background, he attended medical school at the Virginia College of Osteopathic Medicine, did his residency in physical medicine and rehab at the University of Virginia, and also did a fellowship in sports medicine at University of Virginia. And Dr. Ribniak specializes in non-surgical sports medicine, running medicine, sports ultrasound, orthobiologics. Um, he has a special interest in working with endurance athletes, especially runners at the UVA Runners Clinic. And to top it off, he also runs himself. He has a personal best of 227 in the marathon and um, also works with several teams, including uh, UVA, James Madison. And if I had this right, I was reading that you were a team physician for Fluvanna High School. Correct. Yeah. That's where your family's from, right? That's, or your yeah. wife's family. My wife is went to Fluvanna High School and she was one of the flying flucos. Oh, Yeah. I don't know exactly what a fluco is. I'm still trying to figure that out 10 years in, but uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's great to take care of them. Yeah, cool. Um, so uh, with that with that being said, we um, just want to dive into this topic and we'll start by having you tell the listeners uh, who you are and what gets you ready to run. Yeah, well, thanks guys for having me and thanks for doing this kind of podcast. It's great to have this kind of 
back and forth and conversation in the sports medicine world and just the running community in general, because it's such a small, tight knit community. And, you know, it's certainly helpful to kind of bounce ideas and hear from others. And, you know, that helps our knowledge base grow. Um, I've been a runner for as long as I can remember. I, I mean, I started in middle school, high school running competitively, um, got recruited to go run at William and Mary. Um, at the time, we we're kind of one of the top distance programs in the country and uh, got a lot of kind of knowledge about what it's like to be a runner and honestly what it's like to be hurt as a runner uh, and I, I was hurt most of my collision career and you know that kind of really drove me into the sports medicine and taking care of runners um, as I'm sure a lot a lot of folks who get into kind of sports medicine they've had some type of injury career uh, injury uh, happenstance during their career um, after college I, I attended medical school at uh VCOM or Virginia Tech, as we like to call it, and dabbled in the sub-elite kind of running world for a little while, just trying to continue to, to run at a semi-high level while balancing, you know, academics, which was a reality for a little bit and then became less and less so as I got busier with my medical training. And then I was just, I was lucky enough to come to UVA, which uh, we, you know, for years, uh, Dr. Bob Wilder, who's my mentor, he started the UVA Runners Clinic back in the late 90s, early 2000s, before, you know, running medicine was really a thing. And he's been building that practice and taking care of the community here for such a long time. And similar to Boulder for you guys, you know, Charlottesville is a really rich running community, lots of history, lots of runners, um, big college town. And so, there's a lot going on. And, and, you know, so I got to train under him, learn under him. I and mean, he literally wrote the book on running medicine. Uh, and so it, it's been a privilege to learn from him. And then basically as my career has gone on, I've kind of delved into working with runners, working with our collegiate athletes, our high school athletes. We take care of the Reebok Boston track club here, you know, some of our professional runners as well, as well as just our community runners. And it's, it's something that brings me a lot of joy to be able to give back and help out with all the, uh, uh, all the running events in the community. Um, and then, you know, within that, I've really delved more into ultrasound and musculoskeletal ultrasound in particular, and then regenerative medicine, which we'll touch on, which includes PRP, because there really wasn't anyone doing it here at UVA when I trained. Um, so I really felt like there was a need for our community here. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's who I am. And in terms of what gets me out running, I mean, I really think it's the relationships. I've built a lot of relationships through running, got up this morning and ran five miles in the freezing cold rain with two of my buddies. And, you know, it was, we got through it cause we had some good stories to tell about our weekend and, you know, talked about the big UVA win last night over Duke and all, all kinds of things. So, uh, you know, it, it, I think the relationships are really what gets me running. Anytime someone beats Duke, then it's something to celebrate. Exactly. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to like kind of learn from your expertise as a clinician. And then um, like you mentioned a second ago, the um, like being a, a runner yourself is really helpful in working with runners. Cause you kind of understand the, the drive and the, the terminology. Um, and I was kind of curious to back up to some of your, undergrad running experiences, um, that you kind of mentioned with injuries. Cause I was a very injured collegiate runner as well. And that's why I wanted to become a PT. Um, so yeah, are there any like specific injury frustrations that you had as an undergrad that, that jump out at you? I mean, I just think in our, our medical community in general, running is a really 
poorly understood activity. You know, there's, uh, and I think it's the most popular activity. I think it's the thing I see the most in my clinic, people trying to run because it's easy to do. And, you know, New Year's resolutions, I'm going to get out and run three miles. And, you know, a lot of people want to do it and it's cheap to do and it's easy to do, but people don't really understand it. So you don't know how many people come into my clinic and say, the last doctor told me I should stop running. I should be done. And, you know, me and Dr. Wilder make it a really prideful thing that we don't like to tell people they can't run. You know, there are certainly circumstances where, you know, we say, you know, this, this may worsen this condition or whatever, but we try to come up with some creative solution. How do we get you back out on the roads? It might not be your 70 miles a week that you want to do or that you're used to doing, but how do we get you so you can run a few miles a few times a week and get, you know, really scratch that itch. Um, so at least for me at, at William & Mary, I just, I think, you know, there wasn't a really great understanding of run it, runners in general. And then we just ran a super high volume there. I mean, I had got teammates running 120, 130 miles a week in college doing marathon training. And, you know, it, it was basically, we had 40 guys on the team and the last seven to 10 standing were really strong and we would get top 15, top 10 in the country. But there was a lot of guys, you know, kind of left in the wake and, you know, I think the world of my coach and I think, you know, we had a great program, but I think you're always going to get that when, when you're training at a high level. Um, so I really sought to learn more about how to take care of runners. I think there's a need for it as, as you guys have uh, has found mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I think a lot of college athletes experiences, uh, the, you know, you're putting all of, all of your eggs in one basket and throwing it up and see, seeing who doesn't crack. And I thought at the time being a college runner that maybe that was just my unfortunate scenario, but as I've worked with more college athletes and post-collegiate athletes, like that's pretty much, you know, the universal way to, way to coach. <laughs> and I think that's kind of slowly getting better, but, um, but yeah, then the, the team physicians who are great surgeons that we had at university of Florida, I remember I had patellar tendinopathy and, you know, literally, um, he said, well, here's some anti-inflammatories and then like, maybe just don't try to run 80 miles a week. And I was like, well, I have to run 80 miles a week. Otherwise I'm not going <laughs> to be very good at running. Um, so yeah, there's, and that was, you know, 15 years ago. So, um, it's exciting how fast the, the field of, uh, treating runners is progressing. I think, um, as, as I learn more every week, I feel like, so. Well, and I, I feel like as a PM&R doc, you know, one of the worst things I can do for you is to just send you a script that says evaluate and treat, you know, here's patellar tendinopathy, just do some rehab and stop running as much. You know, I, I really like to, you know, delve into, let's look at your functional mechanics. Let's look at your gait. We have a couple of treadmills. We're lucky in our, in our clinic to be able to kind of do some of that stuff. And then I like to write specific PT scripts and maybe not every PT is reading it, but, you know, certainly I think it helps you, you know, kind of see what I'm thinking about things and then allows you to kind of build on that with your expertise and actually watching them move. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I think any, any PT is going to appreciate the more specific input, you know, the better I think. Um, and then if I think communication is huge, obviously. So if there's like a need to re regress or progress, um, from what the initial plan is. Um, but yeah, the more, the better, um, in terms of communication. And, um, I think that's how we learn too. Cause, um, every once in a while I'll get like a certain protocol that I'm like, Oh, I've never heard of that. So better, uh, better go figure out what that is. So yeah, communication is key. And so, so you do quite a bit of, 
like ultrasound you mentioned, and then um, platelet-rich plasma is a big treatment um, that you're kind of doing. Um, so could you, yeah, maybe kind of just start with um, kind of what is PRP? Uh, I think everyone's probably heard of it, but let's get a good definition of that. And then how does it um, work? Like, what are, we, uh, what are we doing there? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, first of all, I like to start off by saying, you know, traditionally, and Efren, you may have been trained like this, but, you know, the traditional sports medicine algorithm was always, you know, let's diagnose the problem. Let's throw some anti-inflammatories at it, whether it be injection or oral, let's rehab the folks. And then you're either going to get better or you're going to be going to see the surgeons. And, you know, I think for a lot of our issues that works. And, you know, I, I, I certainly, that's still my go-to, but I think for some of these chronic tendinopathies, these chronic degenerative diseases, we're finding more and more that, you know, it's not really an inflammatory process. You know, it's not really, it's not really, you know, something that can be injected away with steroid or, you know, sometimes rehab can be a little bit tricky um, because of the underlying pathology. So, you know, that kind of brings us into this kind of umbrella of regenerative medicine. And it's a huge umbrella. I think there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of money to be made in, uh, in regenerative medicine. So, you know, there's a lot out there in terms of, you know, for the average patient to digest. And, you know, I, I view it as my role to really educate people about, you know, what are these different things and, you know, how are they different? What are some of the pros and cons and risk factors associated with them? But, you know, I think the goal of regenerative medicine is to kind of instead of it's, I, I tell people it's almost, you know, the opposite of some of these things we're doing steroid wise, we're trying to encourage some healing. We're trying to lay down some, you know, some new tissue, some create a, encourage that innate healing response that may have kind of, uh, it, it may have been stymied by just time and, and you continuing to train on it. And it, I, I, I like to break down, you know, regenerative medicine can include something as simple as you know, dry needling or needling with a needle. And there's some evidence that that can be helpful. Prolotherapy has been around for years and years and years, and that's technically kind of under the regenerative uh, umbrella. PRP, so platelet-rich plasma, um, and then stem cells and some of this newer stuff that's coming out regarding stem cells is also kind of underneath that regenerative medicine umbrella. But I do the most probably in terms of PRP because I think it has its best evidence behind it. Um, it's one of the safest things to do. It's relatively inexpensive. I think there's a lot of pros and really not that many cons in terms of, you know, risk factors to it. So yeah, platelet-rich plasma. So, you know, what, what does that mean? Uh, it's basically we're taking someone's blood, we're spinning it down, we're taking the part that's rich in platelets and growth factors, and we're re-injecting that back into a site. And, you know, it, 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 it's really harping on the, the, the goal of using platelets um, to enable the healing. I think for a long time, and I actually had a patient in the office this week come in and say, oh yeah, platelets, they help clotting. And I think a lot of us are trained in school and, and I think out in the, you know, in, in the non-medical world, everyone knows platelets from clotting, but platelets actually have a lot of important function beyond clotting that we're really trying to bring into the healing process when we're doing this. Um, and so I think that's important to do, you, you, to remember, you know, they're, they're providing a scaffold for, you know, building, basically building blocks to build new tissue on top of, you know, they, they call cells into that. And, you know, I'm always really careful. I have a lot of patients who come in and say, I really want that P 
PRP. I heard it's a stem cell injection. It's not really, it's not a stem cell injection. I think that's important to educate people on because there's a lot of misinformation about that. But, you know, it is a cellular signal, you know, the PRP can act as a cellular signal to cause all these things that happen that would encourage healing, including maybe causing a migration of stem cells into the area. And there's some evidence in the, in the literature to show that, you know, it breaks down dead tissue. So it kind of encourages that process of breaking down some of the dead scar tissue um, and, and really in, encourages angiogenesis, so new blood vessel formation in that area, which can, you know, enable healing. So platelets do a lot more than, 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 uh, than clotting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great definition. That's very easy to understand for most people. And yeah, thanks for that point of clarification between PRP and stem cells, because very similar, get a lot of questions on stem cells, which um, in, at least as, as I understand, a lot of the research is still fairly fairly um, thin at the moment um, with some some positive evidence for certain indications like knee arthritis, but there's still a lot that we just don't know in terms of like technique preparation, who's the right patient, things like that. Whereas I think PRP has about a decade's worth of research ahead of stem cells where we just kind of hashed out a lot of these details already, but it just, it doesn't get quite the same, same attention as the stem cells, just as, as you were mentioning, it might not be as financially lucrative, um, which may change how some, some, uh, practice, but, um, but yeah, so PRP, now that we've kind of defined what it is and how it works, so what are some of the cap common applications that you use in runners? Um, you know, I, I first first start off by saying PRP is definitely not my first line treatment. You know, people come in and I'm not just like, oh, yeah, you got Achilles tendonitis, you need a PRP shot. That's that's what you need first. You know, I still harp back on the fact that, you know, we need to be, you know, looking at the patient's mechanics and, and you know, whether that be ankle mobility, you know, calf flexibility, what does their gait look like? What does their functional tests kind of look like? Is there things that are correctable that we could easily correct and, and address first? Um, I, I find, you know, these, these PRP injections become much more helpful for people when they've been doing all the right things. They've been working with, with Kurt and, you know, making really little gains, but then just kind of hitting a plateau, hitting a wall, and they're just not able to kind of make that kind of final step back into their running. Um, you know, the most common things that I do this for are probably chronic tendinopathies and tears. These are things that just don't really have great surgical options and, and you know, really can plateau quite a bit with PT um, and, and really limit their ability to kind of take that next step to running. Um, mild to moderate um, degenerative joint disease, I think, has some of the best evidence behind it. And, you know, we can talk a little bit of, you know, the evidence there versus, you know, some of the standard treatments that, you know, we, we commonly have used in the past. Um, I use a lot for non-surgical meniscal and labral tears. So, you know, I tell people not every meniscus or labral tear needs surgery. You know, certainly there's some where they're getting a lot of mechanical symptoms or that, you know, they're just not able to feel like they can make certain gains or the surgeons really feel like they can get a good repair. Those are the people who tend to do better with surgery, but there's certainly some folks who either don't want surgery, can't have surgery, or, you know, trying to avoid surgery where PRP can be effective for that. I use a lot of acute or chronic muscle tears. So especially in our sprinting athletes and, you know, uh, folks who kind of have the kind of muscle tear in the hamstring, quad, calf, those types of things, and a little bit for ligamentous injuries. So, you know, that chronic ankle instability or, 
you know, having some type of ligamentous injury that is kind of chronic and just not healing and leading to uh, instability, you know, with their, with their activities. Yeah. Um, that was one of the questions I had is um, kind of like, how long should um, people be trying like more conservative measures, you know, PT and and whatever that looks like for their specific scenario, um, whether that's maybe a tendinopathy or a, a just, you know, um, mild or moderate osteoarthritis, like you had mentioned. Um, but yeah. How, how long should we be trying to rehab it um, before PRP starts looking like a good option? And I, I mean, I, certainly you'd be the expert in this, but I, I find, you know, people who work with a good therapist where they're doing really good focus rehab for six or eight weeks is usually a pretty good trial. If, if beyond that, you're not making gains and it could be little gains and maybe the person's patient and unlike most of our patients are willing to say, okay, I'm going to give this the long haul and see if I can get little improvements. I think that's reasonable, but you know, at the six or eight week mark, you know, certainly I like to delve into exactly what is the therapist doing. And I think that's important because, you know, not all therapy is the same. And certainly there's some that are a little bit more focused on, you know, kind of stretching versus loading the tendon. And, you know, how, how do we approach that, you know, with some of these chronic tendinopathies? Um, but, you know, I, I, I think at that six or eight week mark, if you're not making progress, I really find that, you know, PT is still going to be a critical part, as we'll talk about later with the post PRP protocol, but I, I find this may start the process of healing to a, enable them to make the next step forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, um, what we usually tell people like the first time I meet someone, uh, we're going to say like, uh, like four to six weeks from now, we should start to notice some like positive changes, definitely moving in the right direction. And then like you had mentioned, uh, you know, six or eight weeks, if, if we're really not making good progress, then that's when I'm going to be kind of recommending you just, you know, go, go get a farther evaluation, maybe have it image or ultrasound and then just kind of start pursuing concurrently, like what other options there might be. Um, and in some injuries, like we know, take months and months and months to really fully recover from up to a year for, for some like chronic tendinopathies. But, um, but yeah, I tell people like, if it, if it was me, I would start wanting to like, look at like, what else could we be doing just to make sure we're kind of moving as quickly as we could. And I think it's also important to see, you know, kind of what else have they done? Have they tried a, a trial of anti-inflammatories? Have they, you know, I have a lot of runners who come to see me and they've had, they have a little bit of knee osteoarthritis and they've tried a steroid injection. They've tried the hyaluronic acid injection and they're really saying, I'm not ready to go get a joint replacement or I'm not, my, my arthritis isn't that severe, but I want to continue to run. And how do I do that um, without, you know, kind of either making this worse or just continuing to have pain that's going to limit me. Um, and I, I think that's where I kind of look at the evidence, you know, and this is how I explain it to people. You know, a lot of what we do in medicine is not the, not completely evidence-based, you know, for years we've used steroid injections as kind of the Holy grail and I, not to give steroids a bad rap. I do certainly plenty of them in my practice and I think they have their role, but for these chronic issues for long-term management, I just, I feel like they're not the ideal tool to be using over and over and over again. So I really like to, you know, explain to people that they've actually done some pretty good studies in knee osteoarthritis where they've compared it to steroid and, you know, people are the same at six weeks, but, you know, at a year out, people on with a PR, single PRP injection would be significantly improved functionally and pain wise than someone who had a steroid injection. And the same with hyaluronic acid, you know, people will get improvements from that short term, but longer term, more and more of the studies have shown that, 
you know, PRP can be more effective for longer periods of time. And, and, and I think we're starting to see some of the same stuff in some of the tendinopathies as well. Mm-hmm. And that was for um, mild to moderate osteoarthritis? Yeah, and I think that's important um, in, you know, with patient selection, because I have some people who come to me as kind of the last ditch effort, and you know, they'll have really severe bone on bone arthritis, or a complete rupture of their hamstring tendon, or, you know, these, these obviously pretty severe injuries. And, you know, I, I always tell people we could try PRP. It's not going to harm things, but do I think the likelihood of you being significantly improved with a PRP injection is high? No, because I think the studies have been mostly in mild to moderate arthritis or, you know, mild to moderate tendinopathy. When you have, you know, kind of a severe arthritic picture, a lot of the damage has been done and, you know, PRP is not going to give you new space in that joint. It's not going to significantly decrease, you know, the osteophytes and other things. It's not going to, we don't know if it regrows cartilage and that's, you know, I think some of the hope that it, it, it is causing a, a, uh, intraarticular reaction where you might be getting some healing in the cartilage, but we just don't know. There's no evidence to support that yet. And so, I think for someone with really severe arthritis, I always just try to counsel them on that um, as uh, as a just you know something to be aware of. Yeah, I think it's good to have that open dialogue with the patient to allow them to choose the strategy which fits their needs. And um, as you were mentioning, just kind of risk stratifying these patients as to who's appropriate, who may who may not be appropriate. And I think I think people appreciate that. At least I know. Um, in my practice, when I get those patients with like, you know, tears that just, they honestly just need to be surgically repaired if the patient wants to get back to doing a certain thing and, uh, just giving them evidence of like, where, where does it use, where does it use best? What's the likelihood of success and, um, and letting them choose because it's ultimately their time, their, their, you know, cost, uh, is, is on them and things like that. So, so that's, that's really great that you have that, that dialogue, um, and, uh, I think just like you, I think with a physical medicine and rehab background, I'm very much like rehab minded first as well. And it's like, to me, these are like, this is for the patient who's just like not progressing, may have plateaued, or maybe that patient who has like recurring tendinopathy after making all these modifications and then really treating this as a last line of resort in the non-surgical realm. Yeah. And I, and I think the other important thing is I like to have specific targets. Sometimes people come in with very vague or generalized, you know, musculoskeletal pain and, you know, they expect PRP to kind of be the wonder procedure. You know, they've seen several other, you know, practitioners and, you know, I think they're looking for PRP to be the magic, you know, fix. And I, 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 that's not to say that we can, can't use it in those situations, but, you know, I, I think people tend to do better when you have a specific target. And especially when we'll talk a little bit about ultrasound, being able to visualize that tendinopathy tear, you know, that effusion within a joint allows us as practitioners to really make sure that we're, we're able to kind of specifically target the pathology and hopefully get them long-term improvement. We wanted to take a quick break to share our experience with Joint Health Plus from Prevenex. Joint pain is one of the most common injuries seen in runners of all ages and becomes increasingly prevalent as we get older. Luckily, we know that running is not bad for your knees and joints and does not increase your risk of osteoarthritis. In fact, being physically active and exercising regularly is very important for joint health and overall health. 
I've tried a number of products over the years targeted at joint health and haven't liked any as much as I like this new blend from Prevenix called Joint Health Plus. I've taken it for about six months now and had my best marathon training block with less knee and ankle stiffness after long runs and bigger workouts. I also seem to come off the marathon really well in terms of recovery. It uses a proprietary blend of anti-inflammatories that are clinically proven to decrease pain in people who exercise. I think it is definitely worth giving a try for a couple months if you're dealing with any joint pain or stiffness in conjunction, of course, with strengthening, load management, and overall eating well and doing all of the other little things that we all should be doing. Check out Prevenix.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X, and use code READY TO RUN for 15% off your first order. Prevenix offers a 100% satisfaction money-back guarantee, and their mission is to spread health to all of us. So, like, so once you've selected a, a patient that's appropriate, let's say like a um, uh, hamstring tendinopathy or Achilles tendinopathy, uh, what what is the what does the PRP procedure look like for the patient, and um, how do you counsel them in terms of like number of injections and um, things like that? Yeah, so I think you know this is where it's really important that you educate up front and really let people know kind of what to expect because it is different than a standard kind of show up and get your cortisone injection and go home and you know you'll be feeling good in a few days. And I think if you don't explain it to people, then they kind of either will be calling your office and not too happy, or you know, or they just you know I think they they won't really appreciate you know, how long it takes. And we can talk about that, you know, so basically, you know, I, I bring people in, we draw some blood same day. And it's usually our machine is, you know, we draw about 15 cc's of blood. So it's not a huge amount. And it spins in our centrifuge for about five or 10 minutes. But there's a lot of variability in prep and, you know, uh, you know, how different machines work and how many spins to do. And if they use a plate activator or heparin, there's a lot of, act, you know, and I think that's re- the reason why some of the mi- literature is still mixed because there's not a clear kind of, this is how we prepare PRP. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately I think that makes it harder to, you know, kind of stand behind our evidence when, you know, we're trying to get insurance approval and other things like that. Um, but yeah, it spins for about five or 10 minutes and then I, I'm really careful. I like to use the ultrasound to make sure I can visualize and you know, use that in, in combination of what other imaging they've had, as well as my physical exam, to make sure that we're targeting the right area. Because as you guys know, sometimes people get MRIs and they'll have tears in their gluteal tendons and their hamstring, and you know they have a labral tear, and it's like they, they're just coming to you with hip pain, and you've got to kind of sort out where is this PRP going to be best utilized. So I think using a combination of your physical exam palpation, the ultrasound, as well as the imaging can be really critical to make sure that you're getting the best outcome. And then, you know, basically, you know, we draw off the plasma, it kind of separates into layers, you have on the bottom, you have your red blood cells, in the middle, you have what's called your buffy coat, which is the white blood cells. And then in the top layer, you have your plasma, which is hyper concentrated, you know, up to seven times the normal amount of platelets in that, in that um, plasma. So, 
I draw off the plasma and there's, there is some talk in the literature about what's called leukocyte rich versus leukocyte poor PRP. What that means is basically drawing in that buffy coat or that middle layer where the white blood cells are. There's some thought that leukocyte rich is better for tendons and muscle injuries and leukocyte poor is a little bit better for joints, but that's still not also super clear either. So, you know, I think there's some variability out there in terms of that, but you know, that's how I do things. And then I inject, now, I don't know how you do it, Ephraim, but I use a lot of, I use lidocaine when I do it. I make sure I numb people up both superficially and especially for tendon injections, I numb people up deep because part of my procedure is doing tenotomy. So I'm needling the tendon to create some localized bleeding, breaking up scar tissue. There's pretty good evidence that just needle tenotomy can be helpful alone. And in order to get a good procedure, you really got to numb people up. Otherwise people come back and they say that was the worst experience of my life. Now yeah. there, is, there is some evidence out there to suggest that maybe lidocaine could be tenotoxic or decrease the efficacy of the injection. There's one study that's looked at it, but I I've weighed the pros and cons and I, I keep going back to patient comfort and like you said, if, if you decide you have to do another injection, what's the likelihood that people are going to come back for a second injection if, you know, with that experience? Um, whereas a lot of my people are saying, you know, that really wasn't that bad. I built it up to be a lot worse. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think some of the early literature, um, uh, maybe, I don't know, ten, five to 10 years ago, um, to describe that the effect of lidocaine diminishing the um uh, effective effectiveness of the platelets, but there's been more and more studies over the past few years that say, oh, I mean, at the concentrations, if you go at a fairly low concentration, um, it really doesn't have a negative effect on the platelets. And there's so many other variables that you can optimize as well. And part of, like you said, part of it is just, it's the patient experience, right? Um, and you want to make them as comfortable as possible. So they're not moving while you're moving a needle inside them because they are awake for these. Um, and, um, that they come back or they refer their friends back to you when they need it. I think that's some procedures I know I've, I've gone as far as like, say like a plantar fascia, even doing like a tibial nerve block just to help numb that area. It's, it's like night and day. Uh, yep. I used to do it without lidocaine when I first started and man, those people were miserable. Um, but um, yeah, fortunately as evidence changes, I think my practice has also changed. Yeah. And then after I'm, I think the, critical thing is I, I go back in and I spend a lot of time educating on them on what to expect. So, you know, first, I typically say we want to avoid anti-inflammatories because there's certainly some evidence in the literature. And I think it just makes sense that if we're trying to ca cause an inflammatory cascade and trying to get some healing, we don't want that to be diminished by anything. So, you know, I would include NSAIDs in that oral steroids, steroid injections, you know, at least in the area. Um, I usually include ice directly on the area. And then, you know, some of these other kind of over the, over the counter or topical or um, other types of anti-inflammatories I try to hold as best as we can. Um, I usually tell people take a week or two off rehab just to kind of let them calm down. Now, if they already have something set up, I think getting in and, you know, doing some gentle range of motion and some light stuff is fine. But, you know, oftentimes people are going to be more aggravated the first few days, first week. So going in and kind of just building on that is not going to really be beneficial, I find. And then, you know, I really lay out a timeline. You know, I say the first week you're going to be probably worse and it's going to be hurt a little bit more and you're going to be more stiff. The second and third week, you're probably going to want to call me and say that shot didn't work. And what do we do next? And I say, we just got to be patient. It's really that fourth through the sixth week. And even beyond that, for some of these chronic tendinopathies that I see, people just kind of slowly improve. 
And that's the critical window. I think that three to six week period that we want to be loading the tenant and we can talk a little bit more about that in the post PRP protocols. Um, but, you know, I think oftentimes because people are, you know, have tears or have had a procedure, um, I've had some therapists where they really want to back off and be careful about not doing too much. And I think the key is we want to load that tenants because I, I think, you know, what I know from tendinopathies and what has been kind of reinforced to me through, you know, meeting lots of experts in this is tenons want to be loaded and they, you know, especially in a runner or an athlete, we want to load these tenons. Now we don't want to do it too quickly and we definitely want to do it progressively and stepwise, but you know, oftentimes we just kind of ignore that and we just do some stretching and some light stuff. And, you know, I think that we miss that critical window to really remodel that and strengthen that tendon. Yeah, that's great. And I think, I think um, it, it sounds like very similar approach based off of uh, the study from, I think, 2011 with Ken Mautner from Emory and then uh, the late Jared Malenga, uh, where they talk about optimization of ingredients, post-injection rehab uh, for PRP for tendinopathy, where they kind of, kind of outline exactly what you said in terms of the timeline and match that with like the biologic healing time uh, for the platelets to work and go through their remodeling process. Yeah, I think I've seen that from you, uh, Efren, that kind of like nicely laid out uh, timeline. And um that really helps to explain it to patients as well. And uh, people, people definitely are more sore for a couple of weeks after uh, these injections from what I've seen. And I usually like, think that's a good thing, you know, like it's, uh, that was what we expected. We knew it was going to be a little bit more sore, a little bit more sensitive, um, and then kind of gradually start to get things stronger and uh, loading the the tendons specifically. Um, usually if that person has been seeing me before they had the injection, we're going to have to dial it back you know, quite a few notches from where they were, um, for like a couple of weeks to build back up during that, like proliferation phase of, of like four to four plus weeks, I guess, is when kind of the, the cell should be, um, you know, proliferating and remodeling. And that's when, that's when we're getting our, uh, bang for our buck, right. Is that those new cells are, uh, yeah, turning into the nice, strong tendon collagen cells that we want. Right. So, um, oh, I guess I had a question about running specifically. So, there, there's some like variability in the expectations of like when people should start running again. Um, sometimes people are, are instructed, uh, take a couple of days off and then just start running kind of let pain be your guide. And then, um, other times it's more of a, a strict, like let's wait, you know, three weeks or, or longer and then start to build back up. So I was curious what your, what your thoughts are and, and what the research says, if there, if there's any available. As far as I know, there's really not much research. And I think just in general, post-PRP protocols and especially, you know, the rehab components, um, I tend to fall back more on common sense and function, you know. And I think, you know, when I'm writing a PT script or giving instructions, you know, I, I think I, I, I lean back on that progressive loading and I usually write it out. I mean, I say, yeah, the first week we just want to do gentle range of motion and then maybe some isometric isotonic stuff where we're not really super stressed in that, that area. And then each week we're adding on maybe a little concentric work. And then, you know, ultimately the eccentric functional work is what we want to, like you said, we want to really be hitting, you know, for tendinopathies in that, you know, four, five, six through the eight week mark. Um, but you know, everyone's get a little bit different. So some people are going to be a little bit slower and some people are going to be a little bit uh, faster. I usually say no return to running at least for two weeks. And, you know, I, I explain it to people and, 
even that's sometimes difficult for our runners to understand. But I say, we're trying to get some new cells healing. You, you're just going to go out and shear all this off. And, you know, I think the key is we want to really just enable some of these cells to start to kind of build on each other. And then really, ideally, I, I would like a functional improvement in rehab before I'm able to kind of get them back and running. And, uh, you know, for some of my therapists who work with me a lot, I'm saying, hey, once they're getting to this point where they're able to do some of these functional exercises that are running specific, then we're able to kind of progress them. And, you know, there's other things we can all, you know, some of my UVA and JMU athletes will use the uh, the boost or the Ultra, Ultra G treadmill to kind of start to do some of that, um, you know, and certainly, you know, allowing you to kind of offload there's you know some of my athletic trainers have been using some bfr which you know has uh, blood flow restriction for those of you who don't know which you know is is interesting in its concept basically you're decreasing some of the blood flow to the to the affected limb so you can load that tendon um at a less less stressful weight or a less stressful uh uh kind of resistance but still getting that same kind of burn in there um, there's less studies regarding that in terms of uh, PRP, but I've had some, you know, kind of anecdotal uh, success with that using some of our athletic tra trainers and uh, here in the in the collegiate sports. Um, but the whole goal is to be progressive with that, and you know, I think the running has to be included in that because I think for you to just say, hey, take a couple days and then get it back out there, I, I just don't think those people are going to be successful. Yeah. And that's kind of what I've seen just an anecdotally is, um, the people that don't take the time to kind of have that hard reset and then build back up their rehab exercises and actually get stronger where they need to be stronger in a meaningful way. Like if we, if we just jump back into running too quickly, um, I think those are the people that end up, um, not being, um, you know, having a super successful outcome as good as they could have, if they just taken a little bit more time, because in the grand scheme of things, what's a few extra weeks, you know, to kind of really give it the best shot it's got for healing. So yeah, the BFR stuff is um, kind of exciting. It's been studied a lot in ACL rehab. And I think just recently in tendinopathies, and I, I think um, kind of some of like the cellular signaling and, and there's some other things that are maybe at play that we don't quite understand because um, it doesn't, make a whole lot of sense why it would be helpful for tendons, but people seem to be liking it. And, um, yeah, so that's another kind of new, exciting adjunct thing, but, um, another question. So in my PT brain that I'm always curious about is, uh, the actual, like the, so you mentioned 15 CCs is what was, um, kind of like drawn out, like how much volume is actually being injected back in sorry this is just something i was kind of like yeah wondering. so i mean that's a great question and I, I i find the rate limiting step for a lot of my prps is how hydrated the patient is because you know certainly 15 cc's of blood can be really thick blood and then you spin it down and you get like three or four cc's of prp i think ideally usually i'm getting five or six which is plenty for large joints and tendons and things like that um when you start getting less or sometimes I'll have patients who say, Oh, you're doing my knee. Would you mind doing my other knee and maybe mm -hmm. a little bit of my Achilles and can this all be included under one price? You know, I, I just, you start running the risk of you're just not going to get much benefit from it because of the volume. Um, so I'm always really careful about telling people we want to make sure you're well hydrated heading into heading into a PRP injection, both for ease of finding blood vessels in order to draw the blood, but then also just from a, 
volume standpoint, um, I think is, is important. Yeah. Good to know. Don't be dehydrated. Exactly. <laughs> and then, uh, what are the, the, I guess, tendons that are most successful, like the sites that, um, are most successful in, in your experience? Um, I guess ever, like Achilles and patellar probably see the most of versus like a peroneal or tip post, um, those kind of smaller tendons. Yeah. I mean, I think the things that I probably do the most of are honestly gluteal and hamstring tendons, um, because a lot of people have, you know, not just runners, but, you know, a lot of active folks have that kind of tendinopathy underlying our traditional trochanteric bursitis or our ischial bursitis, which I think is, you know, I always teach our residents, there's something causing that bursitis and it's usually tendinopathy. So there's something underlying that issue. And I think until we address that, if we just keep sticking steroid in that area, people don't get better. Um, and, you know, I think there's a couple reasons why PRP is really effective. First of all, you know, you can really visualize those areas really well with the ultrasound and make sure you're able to kind of get in into that area. Um, also, there's really not a great surgery. You know, the surgeons who I work with for gluteal tendinopathy and gluteal tears liken it to sewing tissue paper together. You know, they say it's very thin and macerated tissue. So even if you do get a repair, the, the likelihood that these people are re-tearing is pretty high. Um, and, you know, so they're not super jazzed about taking these folks to surgery. And I think the same with hamstrings, you know, there's a lot of important structures back near the hamstring, including the sciatic nerve, which can be potentially injured. So, you know, doing an injection of PRP, it's a lot less risk and a lot less downtime because they're not going to have to sit on crutches for six weeks or more um, post-surgery. Uh, so oftentimes I can talk my runners into trying that. You know, I, I honestly, you know, Achilles is kind of a mixed bag for me, at least in my clinic. I've, I do it a lot. I have some people do really well, and then I have some people, and I think it depends on the severity of the disease. But as tendons get more tendinopathic, you know, that thickened kind of grossly enlarged tendon with kind of the haglands and the bone spur, and then, you know, they have some partial tearing. You know, I've had some people do really well from that, but I just find as runners, we rely on our Achilles so much. I, I find it's so hard to get people back to that level where they're able to kind of run at the level without pain. And so, you know, I have a mixed bag with that, you know, but, you know, the perineals and post tibs and, you know, plantar fascias and, you know, gastrox and um, patellar tendons, I, I, I get I get pretty good results with. Um, circling back to the Achilles, I want to dissect that a little bit. Um, do you see a difference in outcome between the different types? So like a mid portion Achilles tendinopathy, which is uh, that type that's about six to eight centimeters above the insertion versus your insertional type tendinopathies. Yeah. And I think that's another big part of it. You know, the, the more proximal ones I find just overall just tend to do better. Whereas the insertionals are just they're, they're more difficult to treat and they, they tend to be painful. And I think even from a rehab perspective, they're more difficult to treat because it, it's hard to load those people and not have pain. Um, and, and, you know, it's, I, I often find, you know, these people have a lot of insertional calcific tendinopathy. So kind of calcium within their tendons, they have that big pump bump or that Haglund's deformity. And, you know, that those things in themselves can cause pain and Oftentimes I'm not able to do much about that with the procedure. So, you know, we can get the tendon to heal, but oftentimes they'll continue to have some pain or bursitis or other things that are kind of going along with that. Yeah. I think, I think that's where, um, at least for me as a 
someone who performs PRP, understanding the limitations uh, where it's useful and not useful and having surgical colleagues in my practice to, to back me up when, and then help the patient out when, when it's just not responding to non-surgical treatment. And I think Kurt and I both had several, um, several patients with uh, insertional Achilles tendinopathies. And these are you know pretty high level runners who like, man, they have the whole kitchen sink going at them. And I think we've had at least five or six, and then they, they eventually just had to go in for like a Haglund's resection. And uh, what used to be thought of as a career ending surgery seems to be a career saving surgery for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been finding more and more kind of high level or professional runners. Some of our collegiate runners have been able to kind of come back from that surgery and do really well. And that's not to say that we can't try because everyone's going to be a little bit different. You know, some of these, you know, more conservative measures, including PRP injections. I've just found that one can be tricky, especially for our runners. Yeah. I think insertional Achilles tendinopathy is probably the, one of the hardest things to, to treat, uh, in a, in a runner and as a PT, um, like, well, the, the treatment strategy is actually pretty easy, but you know, how you do it all is, you know, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies there and then it just takes time. And then, and some people just respond as you would expect in that kind of slow time frame, but then other people just, um, you know, they feel better when they're not running as much, but as soon as they start doing the type of running that they, that they want to do, um, they, you know, things kind of can get flared back up again. So that's, I have a, a year, uh, cut off of, if you, if you're trying to rehab your insertional Achilles tenopathy for more than a year, um, then, you know, you, you probably, um, got to see somebody else, um, with a different expertise than a, you know, PT, uh, at that point. Um, and people have done really great in our, our little local experience here with that, but, um, hamstring tendinopathy, um, as someone who has it, um, I'm happy to hear that PRP works well there because, um, I'm managing it mediocrely well, I would say, but yeah, I'm happy to hear that it's something that's successful, um, with, with, uh, you know, PRP and, uh, it's interesting. I, do you guys feel like you've seen more proximal hamstring tendinopathy in the past couple of years in road racers? Uh, I just have this theory that, uh, the super shoes that people are wearing are creating more like, uh, hamstring loading. And I don't know, I just, I've definitely seen a lot more of them in the past couple of years in my little world. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, I, my nurses joke with me. I'm the butt pain doctor. Cause I see so many people with with kind of this vague butt pain, which ends up being this kind of issue of bursitis. And they've had a thousand steroid injections. And then you throw the ultrasound on them. Yeah. They have high grade tendinopathy or high grade tearing. And I say, yeah, you know, certainly steroids going to make that feel better for a few weeks, but then, you know, we can, and, and including runners. I mean, I, I had a runner who runs probably 10 to 15 marathons a year and does a lot of, a lot of running and, you know, had some pretty high grade, hamstring tearing which he was ready to go have surgery and the surgeon sent him to me for a last ditch effort prp injection and then we actually re-mri'd him and it completely healed which was pretty amazing to have the side to side mris about six months apart and see the complete healing on mri now that hasn't been reproduced in the literature but you know I, i've seen people do really well from this and be able to stay stay out of the operating room and get back running mm -hmm. And it's also an area, like you mentioned, diagnostically, like where ultrasound is really helpful because um, 
I mean, sometimes like I'm scratching my head and sending someone to see Efren because um, you're like, well, I think it's your hamstring, but it could also be some referral from a little bit more proximally. Um, yeah, that's a, an, like ultrasound is super helpful. And um, just like trying to, like you, you mentioned earlier, try to like isolate what the biggest issue is and kind of what we could maybe treat most specifically. Exactly. And I, you know, I teach our residents, you know, the ultrasound, especially for us sports and PM&R docs is really just an extension of our physical exam. You know, it, it, it oftentimes we're kind of palpating and we're not really sure exactly is this piriformis, is this hamstring, is this, you know, is this something else that could potentially be going on? And it's nice that, you know, me and Efron can kind of throw the ultrasound on and say, is this where you hurt? And then look and see what's there. And, you know, I think at least at the minimum, it, it has helped a lot of my PT colleagues, you know, be able to kind of focus the rehab a little bit better, but it also allows us to be a little bit more targeted with things. And there's pretty good studies. And I always, the residents like this, that they've compared attendings, seasoned attendings doing injections blind versus a new trainee with an ultrasound. And who do you think is more accurate? And it actually it ends up being the trainee. So, you know, I, I think, you know, for, especially with PRP, I tell people, if we're going to spend the money and the time to do it, let's make sure we're putting it where it needs to go. You know, doing this blind is, is not, not ideal or palpation based. Are, are most people in the field using um, ultrasound guided or are still a lot of people just do it like not using ultrasound to administer uh, PRP or other orthobiologics? I think it depends on the era of training and, you know, you know, how comfortable you are. Cause I, I, I think, you know, some of my older colleagues are folks who just haven't had, and I, I really feel like ultrasound became an important part of our training, literally like right before maybe a few years before I trained, you know, 10 years ago was not a huge part of, you know, both residency and, and fellowship training. So not a lot of docs feel super comfortable with it. And it's hard to get that expertise after you finish because it, it's expensive and it, you got to pick it up from courses and it's really hard to do. So, you know, I, I feel like it's becoming more and more commonplace and we certainly teach it to our residents and fellows pretty substantially. And I think it's just an extra tool that is really helpful, um, you know, for a sports doc to, you know, for a runner to be able to kind of look and, and say, you know, functionally, and my patients love it because they come in with an Achilles injury. And instead of me just saying, ah, this could be a tear, it could just be tendonitis, just let's just do this. I can throw the ultrasound on and say immediately, no, you have a little, little tearing that we need to put you in a boot and do this and that a little bit differently versus, hey, you know, you're pretty safe to run your race this weekend you know, let's just do a little anti-inflammatory, but I think the risk of you rupturing this is really low. And so for a lot of my runners, it helps me really be able to kind of tell them, you know, how to proceed safely. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. I know at least my mentor, one of them, when he was teaching me, he would always tell me, you want to know what you're treating before you treat it. And then you want to have the confidence to know that when you are treating it, you're treating it accurately. Um, and yeah, ultrasound is just one of those things that has, has allowed us to, to do that, really take care of patients. And um, in, in some instances, can even have a higher resolution um, than an MRI, which is just great and at a lower cost. Um, well, you've given us a lot of really, really great information. Um, I think um, this is probably one of our listeners will want to have to listen to you at least once or twice to digest everything and take away all the good points you have made here. But if we could maybe just kind of summarize, what, what are some of the key takeaways you want you want patients and also the clinicians who listen to the show to to, to, to know about PRP and 
uh, when when they're choosing this treatment and how they can best optimize them their outcomes. Yeah, and I think it boils down to you know it 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 still should not be a first line treatment for your you know your initial visit who comes in with a new sports running injury. I think it's a, it's a really helpful tool for those folks who we all see in our practice who are kind of those folks who come back to you repeatedly either for injections or other types of things. And you're just like, how can I change, you know, my pattern here? How do I, how do I get this person better longer term? You know, you know, with a therapist, you know, those people who are kind of rehabbing this Achilles or hamstring for, you know, months and years. And you're like, this should be better by now. Or, you know, for those folks who, you know, you treat them traditionally with some anti-inflammatories and rehab, and they're just not getting better. And you may or may not have some imaging to support, you know, a chronic issue, whether that be kind of a little bit of generative joint disease or tendinopathy. It's just a helpful tool that I tell people is safe. It's easy to do. It's, you know, it's relatively inexpensive. And that's one thing we didn't touch on is, you know, unfortunately, a lot of insurance companies don't cover this, but at least how we offer it, it's, you know, it's a reasonable cost that a lot, I think a lot of people are more likely to kind of pull the trigger on because of all the things they've tried and the fact that they want to get back to running. Um, And, you know, I I tell people it's, it's not going to prevent you from having surgery. It's, you know, in fact, some of the surgeons tell me that they feel like the PRP actually improves their surgical outcomes because it improves the tissue quality. So if they need to go down the road of surgery, trying a PRP first is not going to be detrimental. I think for the future of PRP and just regenerative medicine in general, there just needs to be more studies. And I think, you know, volume of studies, different pathologies, how do we prep this? How do we how do we kind of standardize how things are done? And I think that's important because it's going to help, you know, support what we do as clinicians, but also help support maybe eventually getting this approved by the major insurance companies and things like that. So it is something that we can offer to all our patients instead of just those patients who are able to kind of unfortunately financially afford it. Um, And, you know, I think there just needs to be more education, you know, with not only, you know, our patients and explaining to them, this is not stem cells. This is not, you know, a magic drug. You know, it's something that A, is is a helpful tool, but there's some work after. We got to rehab this. And then B, you know, educating our clinicians. There's, there's plenty of folks who I interact with who really don't understand why is PRP different than a steroid injection and how do we use it differently? So I think having that in, in their toolbox allows them to say, Hey, you're not getting better. I'm going to send you over here and we're going to try something different. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just in my 10 years as a PT, the, uh, quality of like care, uh, with PRP is really improved, like, and seems to be accelerating every year. So I'm really excited uh, for the options that people have for those injuries that really aren't getting better with PT or other conservative managements. Yeah. In the next decade and definitely hopeful for more, for more studies and, um, to kind of better know, like, you know, maybe who we should send earlier or, or, or what, what patients are, we can, imagine are going to have a, the best outcomes for their, um, for their injuries with PRP. Um, yeah, a lot of exciting stuff and, um, yeah, just, uh, good to know that there's, there's other options. Um, and also, uh, I, I really like, uh, to encourage people to, you know, get the, get things diagnosed. Like you both had mentioned, like if, if it's not getting better, like figure it out, know what you're treating and then like, just know what your other options are. And you're still going to have to do PT, but I think uh, like working as a team in, in the sports medicine field is 
you know, getting better and better as well. So I hope we can keep improving outcomes in that way too, just by communicating better. Yeah. And then you have a, you have a course coming up next month. Yeah. So we have our annual running medicine conference. So we do that every year um, and we invite, you know, international experts to talk on different uh, topics. It's, it's something that, you know, is usually a mix of PTs and physicians and coaches. And, you know, we've had everyone from Frank Shorter to, you know, some really well-known clinicians come and talk to us about cool procedures or how they approach the rehab or, you know, how to approach tendinopathies. We'll have a nutrition talk, a kind of energy deficiency talk. I'm actually going to give a talk on super shoes and, you know, kind of what the literature is out regarding those. Um, so, you know, usually some really interesting talks about, you know, some of the hot topics in running. And and it's really for for a clinician who likes to take, take care of runners, it's it's a really cool kind of one day course to kind of get up to date. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll, uh, we'll put the, a link to the, that website up in the show notes and, um, sounds like a great, uh, a great learning time. Um, well, uh, yeah, thanks so much for, uh, for your time and expertise and, uh, excited to get this one out and, uh, yeah, hope you have a good rest of your, your Sunday. Yeah. We're recording on Super Bowl Sunday. So before you leave, who's your pick? Well, I'm a Bills fan, and unfortunately, we had a tough end of the season. So uh, I don't know. I, I guess I got to lean towards the to the Eagles because the Chiefs have just been kind of a heartbreaker for us recently. But it'll be a good game nonetheless. <laughs> Sounds like a pain, painful response to have to submit to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, but, hopefully the Bills will be there next year. I think a lot of us really enjoy watching them. And I appreciate all you guys inviting me here and all that you're doing to help keep runners on the road. I mean, it's certainly great to see other folks out in kind of different communities doing similar things and, you know, kind of how you guys do things different, how you guys do things the same. And it's great to talk back and forth with you and um, hope to see you guys out on the roads. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.